This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Local Toronto MP is Beaches East York MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. He, of course, ran for the Ontario Liberal leadership as well and finished a close second. And he joins us once again on Toronto Today. It's great to have you back on. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Tell me about your observation. First of all, what you're hearing from constituents who live in Toronto proper. You're a Torontonian. You're surrounded by Torontonians in Beaches East York. Um, I think people knew, uh, Nate, that this would be a sizable property tax increase, but it's uh, it's tough news to get early in the week with everything already costing so much. I don't think anyone wants to see such a major tax increase, but there's also recognition that Toronto has not paid its share in property taxes in comparison to the rest of the province when you look at what other municipalities ultimately pay and what citizens and other municipalities ultimately pay. We've also seen previous administrations here in Toronto fail to modestly increase them over time, so you see a significant increase all at once. Having said that, I think you also see citizens, certainly here in my community, that want certain issues addressed, whether it's transit, whether it's homelessness, whether it is supporting asylum seekers, and they don't care what level of government is responsible. They just want it fixed. And so that's incumbent on me, incumbent on my federal colleagues, incumbent on councillors and provincial representatives to all work together. This feels like, I mean, a threat's a strong word, but uh, you heard Shelley Carroll, um, the budget chief and Toronto City Councillor, say, well, if we don't get X amount of money, this is going to be what the tax rate is uh, for the year. There is that element of some give and take here. When do we start to get a sense as to what the federal government would offer up? And it's rare that, you know, a government will give exactly what is asked to a city. So would you guess there'd be some negotiation process here? Negotiation would make sense because... As a starting point, we're not at zero dollars from the federal government. We're at historic amounts from the federal government on transit, on pandemic relief, on asylum seekers, and on housing. I mean, we just did an announcement not so long ago with Mayor Chow where we delivered $471 million to the city to support getting housing built. And so when you look at the overall picture, there's been massive support for Toronto from this federal government. Now, on this acute issue of asylum seekers, we saw over 20,000 asylum seekers come to Ontario last year. Many come to Toronto. It's an acute pressure. Toronto has designated itself as an asylum city. Still, they need support. And I think the federal government could and, and should step up on this particular issue. I don't know what the exact perfect amount is. As you say, negotiation mm-hmm. makes sense. But at the end of the day, we should be a partner. We should step up on this particular issue when Toronto is acutely impacted and especially impacted, unlike other municipalities. One thing I've heard, um, and I've heard it about the federal government, Nate, is the idea of there still has to be an ask. And I think I think the province and Doug Ford, and I'd say to their credit, was asking Toronto this. You also do need to do what every other level government's doing, every every household's doing, and that's look for inefficiencies. What's redundant? What are you paying too much for? And Toronto decided not to do that, didn't want to look inside the house. Anita Anand asked uh, many federal bureaus, didn't she, about four or five months ago, um, because she's the Treasury Secretary, to do that as well and look for ways to save money. Can I make the case the federal government should be demanding the city of Toronto do a little bit better job of that? I think all levels of government need to look at their own financial house and say, what are our priorities in tough times? How do we make sure we're allocating the right dollars to the right places and that we're not spending dollars in places that we shouldn't be? And that all makes sense to me, and the city should be doing that job. On the 
specific question of asylum seekers, because I think that's going to be the only place where the federal government steps in here. That's an area where people, for better and worse, look at it and say, don't care what level of government, fix this issue. And the federal government seems to have some responsibility considering people are coming from other countries and, and making an asylum claim here. I think the feds have to do three things ultimately. One is provide resources to Toronto to help resolve this issue in the short term. Two, step up on resources for ourselves, make sure these claims are processed. People should know these are not refugees in many cases. These are people who are claiming asylum here, have a right to claim asylum here, but they may not have a valid asylum claim, in which case they don't have a right to stay here. But the processing can't take so long that we end up spending an inordinate amount of resources to house them and feed them and, and help them live here. Uh, and lastly, we need to make sure that it's not just Toronto that's impacted, that we have to make sure that this is a provincial and national coordination issue so that where there is capacity in other shelter systems, we, we, we use that capacity. I got one more, and I only got 30 seconds for it. The Liberals acknowledged uh, late in the 23 year they wouldn't be able to pass pharmacare legislation. Um, this looks like a little more of a long game to me. That it's not this—that's uh, not a massive priority right now for either the NDP or the Liberals. The, the massive priority is just keeping people solvent and on their feet. Would would that make sense? Yeah, I mean we have many priorities, but you look at the deal between the Liberals and the NDP, and dental care is being rolled out. It's going to improve people's lives. This year, it improved some people's lives last year. You've got childcare that's just been delivered and improving people's lives based on that cooperation and deal. And pharmacare is going to not only take legislation, and legislation is important, and we're going to see that legislation this year. It is going to take a significant dollar sum, and I don't see that dollar sum coming in the short term. No, no. It feels like a, a lot longer game, maybe even leading to the, the next election. Nate, it's great to have you back. Uh, thanks very much for the time this morning. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Nate Erskine-Smith, uh, Liberal MP for Beaches East York. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Overnight, in fact, evening for us overnight, was uh, airstrikes from the United States and the UK. There were four other supportive countries as well. And maybe this was inevitable on uh, the Houthis, who've been causing a lot of chaos and havoc uh, up and down the Red Sea, uh, boarding ships, stealing um, uh, goods from ships as well. Military analyst, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland joins us now for a few minutes to give us his perspective on it. Colonel, thanks so much for the time this morning. Greg, it's great to be with you. Joe Biden laid this out yesterday, uh, rather an inevitable uh, decision. Had this been made a couple weeks ago, I think we all probably still would have shrugged our shoulders and not been surprised. Um, the Houthis seemed to uh, know that this would be the provocation and they knew there would be a response at some point, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Greg. I mean, this has been going on, I believe, since the 19th of November. Houthis have conducted over two dozen strikes against shipping there in the Red Sea. And in the day prior to this particular airstrike, we saw a rather massive strike of over two dozen missiles and drones being launched towards shipping in the Red Sea, to include one American vessel that was, that was loaded with jet fuel. That particular vessel had been hit. Obviously, you could have had a massive conflagration <clears throat> which would have killed or injured a large portion of the crew and obviously interrupted shipping even further. And obviously this was an international response, so the United States is clearly in the lead with the military capabilities the United States has. It was supported by a number of countries, to include Canada, oh, by the way, uh, which is part of this international coalition uh, that has been brought together of over 20 countries in response to the Houthis' efforts to interrupt international shipping. 
I keep seeing the concern about a major escalation. I, I, I don't I don't think uh, Gaza is going to escalate. There's been weeks and months on end. It's very clear countries like Egypt and Jordan want nothing to do uh, with Israel v. Hamas. But could this escalate in the Red Sea, Jeff? It certainly could. I mean, one of the immediate responses by the Houthis, and we know they have anti-ship missiles, they've launched some already, is to strike back at this particular coalition of naval forces. And obviously that would elicit an even a more large-scale response uh, against the Houthis. Or you could see horizontal escalation. There's a rather fragile peace that has existed between the Houthis in Yemen and Saudi Arabia. When the Houthis took over uh, Yemen in 2014, that ignited a conflict between them and Saudi Arabia that went on for a number of years. Oh, by the way, I mean, Yemen at at one point was labeled as the world's greatest humanitarian disaster, Mm -hmm. now been outstripped, sadly, by Gaza. So unfortunately, we have a country led by a a leadership who is more intent on trying to get involved in a war than it is trying to deal with a population who is suffering horrifically from the consequences of conflict that has gone on for many years. But back to that for a moment, Mm -hmm. a fragile peace has existed between Saudi Arabia uh, and Yemen for the last year or so. Houthis could strike against Saudi Arabia, or it could strike against U.S. forces stationed in Saudi Arabia, again, eliciting the real possibility of horizontal escalation. Jeff McCausland, our guest, it's asking you to read the political tea leaves to some extent um, on my last question here. But the fact that this looks like an international coalition, this isn't just the U.S. being a lone wolf here. British PM Rishi Sunak involved, and as you mentioned, four other prominent countries, Canada included, with military support for these attacks. Does this give President Biden um, some wiggle room to to make sure that he digs in on this one? Well, I think it gives him international imprimatur. There's no doubt about it. That'll find back in our country, obviously, listening, I think, more support in the United States Congress for a U.S. response. Furthermore, the President of the United States, its commander-in-chief, is responsible for protecting American citizens abroad and international commerce. Clearly, this is uh, what that's all about. About 12% of global seaborne uh, commerce passes through these particular straits, and about 55 million barrels of oil, by the way, pass through this, particularly going to Europe. So I think this will, he is on a a pretty Mm. solid international and legal footing. Clearly, he'll make responses to Congress. Congress was alerted, the leadership at least, prior to these attacks uh, at the beginning. Jeff, thanks so much for the time today. Gives us some clarity on what to expect and, and what our reaction should be about last night. I appreciate you coming on as always. My pleasure. Uh, there's Jeff McCausland. He's a military analyst, retired Army colonel. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to bring on Parthi Candivell. He's Toronto City Councilor for Scarborough Southwest in War 20, won the by-election in the fall, and now jumps right into all these major issues, including the 2024 budget. Parthi, it's great to have you back on Toronto Today. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Greg. Good morning and good to be here. Happy to have you. You know, even when I lay that out about um, the police, there's always that delicate balancing act, right? The police, I get it. They don't want to be the story. They want people to have their democratic right to protest. But we're going to see in the next couple weekends, whether it's in your community or Avenue Road or downtown, what that sort of balancing act is, aren't we? Uh, Yes, definitely. And it's going to be also be uh, part of the discussion of our budget process as well. Right. Um, yeah. The impact on on uh, staffing. Yeah, I know the police budget is going to increase based on last year, but it's not necessarily the ask uh, that police wanted. You've seen some of that reaction. Hopefully, there's you know again a, a meet in the middle, and everybody yeah. can understand uh, that that you know the services won't suffer, and at the same time, people can feel safe. Yeah, 
completely and it's it's part of a bigger discussion right our population has grown dramatically drastically uh that staffing question that ratio needs to be maintained in my opinion um and as a result there have been impacts on housing transit we've seen our federal numbers go from what's typically for decades 400,000 to over a million now. Uh, that has an impact on the city and particularly uh, with the number of refugees and asylum seekers coming in. So part of our conversations with budget are, is addressing the impacts of federal decisions on the city of Toronto. And one thing we're asking very clearly to the federal government is $258 million to deal with uh, the shelters that have become more than overburdened. Parthi Candivelle, our guest, uh, Toronto City Council. You mentioned Scarborough, and we've talked before about how vital, critical um, transit is. Good transit, reliable transit, not just to get around Scarborough proper, but to bring people either into the city or wherever they work. Or, by the way, even for even for leisure, even for spending money on the weekends and doing something fun with their family or with a date. Those are really critical things. So I know you're watching the TTC budget and their efficiencies very closely as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a major point for the mayor, and uh, I think there's a number of things converting the Scarborough T into a busway, taking off those red lanes on Kennedy Midland, uh, and, and growing uh, growing service, and that's that's part of you know the budget process that we've got to reflect on. If we're making enhancements, then uh, people are worried about the the sticker shock of the 10.5 percent. So uh, that. Re- requires a very careful analysis and review in these next uh, four weeks is what was proposed and that 10.5% uh, tax hike is a result of the, the, what the city staff have uh, proposed to council. Now we've got to look at uh, line by line, division by division, starting with next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, three days of committee meetings reflecting on those numbers, which mm-hmm. culminates February 1st, the mayor presents her budget and under the new strong mayor's legislation, it's hers. And then we, we pass it eventually on the 14th, or, uh, but uh, I think there's going to be a review on that on that uh, suggestion. Well, that brings up that 10.5% on Tuesday, and you mentioned the sticker shock. What were you hearing from constituents and some of the people that voted for you on Tuesday? Are they like, we can't handle the 10 point, we got to whittle this down a couple points. How, how, did, how did people respond to you on this? Yes, that's that's exactly on their mind. Um, the concern affordability. I have friends with who are white collar, who've had white collar and blue collar jobs, who've, who've lost their their employment recently. And uh, affordability is something I know is very uh, keen for the mayor. She ran on that, right? In a city that's affordable. So I know uh, there's going to be review. There's going to be discussion. Um, we 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 recognize, you know, the city is experienced very differently uh, based on where you live, right? There, there are folks in, in in neighborhoods in my ward across the city that don't see the same services and programs. So they're being asked to take a tax hike when they haven't seen increase in service, then the, where's the beef is, you know, becomes the question, right? So uh, we need to look at service delivery um, as part of, you know, the justification for, for, uh, uh, for an increase. What are the services? I know you ran on a platform of making local services better. And I heard we had Gord Perks on a couple of days ago and he said people aren't getting a uh, value for dollars right now, yeah. whether it's garbage pickup, snow removal. Mm-hmm. Um, what are ways we can push harder to say, even with existing city contracts, Parthi, what are ways we can push harder and say, we got to give you better? You know, uh, it's, it's a question top of mind. I met yesterday with this top, Bureaucrat, the city manager, Paul Johnson, and, and it's service excellence. It's how do we improve? How do we distribute service appropriately? Let's take daycare. Um, mm. Growing demographic of young families in South Scarborough by the lake. We've got 
the least number of city-run daycare sites, right? So looking at where, uh, who gets what is part of this review. We need to look at growing service in areas that we haven't uh, seen investment. Um, you know, snow clearing, salt dispersal. I've had seniors, you know, one thing that was unfortunate presented by staff today was the removal of the windrow uh, service during, uh, during snow. And that's something seniors, you know, so we're, you know, we've got a commitment to helping seniors age in place. Yeah. And if we're asking them to shovel the windrow at the, at the bottom of the driveway, that's, that's insensitive and something, you know, I'm going to strongly speak up against because uh, that's, that's how we create, uh, you know, uh, allowing seniors to age in place and stay there. So uh, we, we've got to look at who gets what, <laughs> that's the reality yeah. and, and make uh, decisions based on, uh, fairness. And with this storm tonight, we're, we're looking, uh, staring right into uh, trying to help our neighbors out tomorrow and making sure uh, everybody can get where they need to go and nobody gets hurt and and uh, and everybody can, uh, again, you know, sort of have each other's back uh, tomorrow morning. Thanks so much for the time today. I know we'll get to talk soon in the next couple of weeks. I appreciate that. Thank you, Greg. Parthi Candeval joining us on Toronto Today from uh, Scarborough Southwest, new city councillor. They're the newest anyway. It's not new anymore the last few months, and he's dove right in uh, and made himself accountable, transparent, and available to us, and we appreciate that. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. And we thought going into the 88 campaign anyway, and I certainly thought that this could bring us into the official opposition position notably if we got a breakthrough in the province of Quebec. And I remember vividly sitting with my wife, Lucille, and uh, Terry Greer, and uh, my campaign manager, and other senior members of my staff, uh, watching the results come in on election night. And when they came in from Quebec, I was devastated. I was uh, 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 really, it sort of was a, like a, a thump in the belly or something. It was, the, what that said, Broadbent, uh, after talking about the 1988 election, the NDP won no seats. The Conservatives held serve, if you will, 63 Quebec seats. The Liberals won 12. And on November 21st, 1988, that's really the last prominent moment for Ed Broadbent, 15 years as NDP leader, and he passed away yesterday at age 87. Um, and uh, we're losing political titans, titans and giants and people that say, gee, I wish, sometimes they say, I wish politics was more like it was then than it currently is now, where there was some balance and there was some nuance and there was great respect among those three men who ran against each other and each other in 84 and 88. We lost John Turner, obviously, uh, just a few years ago as well in September of 2020. Our next guest's uh, father, the one of those three that remains with us, the esteemed former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. We say good morning to Ben Mulroney now, who will host Toronto this weekend tomorrow morning. It's great to have you on. I bet you that's a little bit of a flashback when I lay out 1988. You and I are close to the same age. I'm a few years older, but you go to school the next day and and Dad keeps his job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, I don't have a lot of personal memories of Ed Broadbent, but I have personal feelings. I remember what it was like back then. And I absolutely remember that when, when those men were, uh, were debating or were fighting it out in the House of Commons, um, you know, they pulled no punches. But I remember a, a, a feeling of respect, mutual respect between all of them. And when I think back to, to Ed Broadbent, I remember a gentleman, a leader, um, a, a passionate advocate for what he believed in, uh, and and um, and I think it's I think it's reflected in how um, these men have referred to each other 
uh, uh, um, it, since leaving politics. I mean, I think we, we, we remember the sad passing of John Turner. Yeah. But I believe, uh, you know, when I, the outpouring of respect that, that he elicited, including from people on the conservative side, it demonstrates that if you lead with respect, that respect will be fall, will follow you back. Do you think, Ben, it's such a I, I we won't answer it in three minutes, but is it was it the people? Was it the fact that politics was just different then or was it the era i'd like to we all we call eras eras for a reason i'd like to think we could get back to where you and i could disagree adamantly on a bunch of stuff but it wouldn't be so personal it wouldn't be it wouldn't be so many primal attacks between the the politicians there, there, there were primal attacks there were make no mistake even though there was no twitter it was it it could get very very toxic the 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 uh, the personal attacks on my father on my mother, uh, it, this was the the depths of um, of dirty politics, uh, and you know you can Google that stuff. It's it it, it was awful. But I, but one on one, the personal mm. relationships. That's what I'm talking about. Generally speaking, the the Liberal Party of Canada and the Press Gallery of Ottawa were disgusting in their treatment of my father specific, specifically. But I don't want to talk about that because it's about Ed Broadbent today. Yeah, it is. It. I think they knew the game. I think they knew how to play the game better. And you're right. They, they knew there'd be attacks. They knew they'd have to adamantly defend themselves. What they didn't have was the. And you and I have both uh, been on both sides of it. The good, the fun part, the good yeah. part, the bad part of social media. That's when you say, "How can I give up your privacy? How can you go online and and you're just going to get blasted here, blasted here by anonymous people?" A lot of good women and men are saying, "No thanks, I'll stay in private industry," yeah. aren't they? Yeah, and and look, if you are if you are um, of the liberal uh, ilk and you want to go into into um, into politics, there's a reasonable chance that you will be part of a government at some point. And you can say that to a lesser degree for somebody who who believes in conservative values. If you're a, a member of the NDP and you present yourself. It's a long shot that you're going to be calling the shots ever. So if you are present yourself as a member of the NDP, you really have to believe in what you do. I have a, a, a real different level of respect for those who go into politics because of what they believe, not because there's the prospect of, of leading a government. And Ed Broadbent certainly didn't go in there thinking, I'm going to be the next prime minister. If he did, if he did, well, there's, there's, that's a different conversation. But it's it's because he believed in his vision for Canada, and that has to be respected by everyone. Yeah, federally there is that challenge. But we're seeing we're saying David Eby rule the roost. I think there's a there's a blueprint there to how you could do it provincially happening in British Columbia right now, yeah. and it's it's balance. It's like I said that move to the fleshy middle a little bit. We got a few minutes here. I know uh, you're on tomorrow morning and Sunday morning, and maybe this weekend ends up being a little bit different. We'll talk about the snowstorm coming, but Toronto police announced yesterday via Chief Myron Demke. They're going to bar anti-Israel protests from the Avenue Road Bridge. I know people were hammering the chief before saying, where are you? Where's the accountability? Where are you just to enforce the law? Maybe better late than never. We'll see what this weekend brings, right? Yeah, it's it, it's it's way too late. Uh, there's a lot of trust that was lost between the police and uh, and the Jewish community. They are owed a debt here and they better be they should be protected moving forward because these protests, they, they were not protests. They were they were mobs of intimidators. That 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 was the point of moving things from. Look, if you want to protest what was uh, the, the, the city's position, you would have been at City Hall. If you want to protest um, uh, Doug Ford, you would have been at Queen's Park. There's absolutely no reason to be there except to intimidate. And yes, every protester has has the right to be angry if they want, if they so choose. 
Every protester has the right to have a grievance. You do not have the right to take the hate that you have in your heart and use it to scare and intimidate uh, lawful citizens. It's just you do, do not have the right to do that. And it's, a, it's about time. I do believe that they've probably taken the lead that they saw from uh, New York City uh, on yeah. this one. Yeah. Uh, so it's not exactly they're not exactly leading on this file, which is which is disappointing. But like you said, better, better late than never. Yeah, there were 330 people arrested in New York City for various blockades Monday morning. Right. First day back to school, back to work for a lot of people. And all these tunnel and bridges, tunnels and bridges were blocked. And to your point, Ben, there's the consulate general of Israel. Have at it. Fill your boots. It's on Blur Street East. Go there. But they don't because they know it won't annoy people the same way and uh, and, and the message won't be as amplified, good, bad or indifferent. Absolutely. And, and look, this is this is good. This is a moving target. And but the, the, the problem, this was always going to escalate, Greg. And, and this is a debate I've had with a number of people. The police are like, uh, said, mm. well, we don't want to escalate things. But if you do nothing, you embolden the, 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 the mob to escalate on their own, which is missing. So it's going to escalate no matter what. It might as well escalate because the cops are trying to take control as opposed to allowing the mob to run rampant. Mm. I know you got a, a snowstorm to follow up on. Is is Ben Mulrooney a, a snow shoveler or do you have a snow plow? Oh, God, no, Greg. Heaven no forbid. Need. Oh, come on. Everybody, <laughs> the, a man's greatest strength is to know his weaknesses. And I have a guy for that. It's called the Jiffy app. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Well, you've you've established there a potential endorsement right there uh, for your future uh, radio career, and you've and you've let the people know that that you know you're you're a man of the people as well. I think at that point yeah. in time, at I, some point, your dad. Like come on, at some point, your dad sends you out to shovel. It it builds character. He probably said. Do you have any idea how long the driveway is at twenty four seconds drive? <laughs> And, and, and besides that, even if I wanted to, the yeah. National Capital Commission would not have allowed me to because that is a union job. Yeah. And then the paparazzi. They're, they're, it's like that vi- video of Donald Trump yelling at his son mowing the lawn. We'd get one of those yeah. moments in time. We can't we can't well, we couldn't have afforded that. Yeah. Hey, Greg, before you let me go, yep, I want yep. to say two things. Quick, quick. One, I cannot thank you enough for letting me sit in your chair. It was a real honor. And two, I cannot wait till Saturday morning where I get to talk about how Lady Luck giveth and she taketh away. In one moment this week, mm. uh, my car survived near total destruction. And then I'm gonna tell the story of how I ended up in the emergency room a few days ago, twice in two hours for the exact same injury. All right, that's uh, that's as, as uh, stellar a tease as, uh, as any uh, radio pro could <laughs> deliver, Ben. Thanks so much. I'll be listening to more morning to you. Thanks, Greg. Ben Mulroney on Toronto this weekend tomorrow and keeping an eye on this winter storm coming as well.